I felt like if I applied myself like I am now, I could have done anything. My father's a 32 years, you know, LA City firefighter, right? I already passed the written test. I kept sitting and thinking about that. Like, I'm in, I'm in Afghanistan on, on a hill aside, you know, waiting to either ambush or get ambushed, you know, and I'm sitting there like, what the fuck am I doing here? You see things in war that you question. I expected to go to war and people would die. And it's more so them than us because we're special operations, you expect that. And that wasn't uncommon to see and I wasn't extremely uncomfortable with that at all. I was uncomfortable with like all the other shit you see, like cities fucked up, you know what I mean? Like it's just really, it's it was, I was severely empathetic to it and it hurt the way I believe in God. So like, I can't wait to get out to fucking show the world what I can do. That's kind of the thing. I was like, okay, now that I'm here, when I get the fuck out, I'm going to do this. You know yeah. what I mean? Welcome to Mic Drop, the podcast where relevancy is irrelevant and we don't give a shit about your feelings. Ladies and gentlemen, as always, it's both an honor and a pleasure to welcome my next guest to the podcast. He spent four years on active duty with the 2nd Ranger Battalion, uh, did one deployment to Iraq, two to Afghanistan, then was in the reserves, was activated for a year, transitioned out, found himself as a prison guard for two years in Florence, Arizona, which we're going to get into, and then transitioned from there into DHS Border Patrol uh, for almost seven years, which uh, he coincidentally wrote a book uh, that we're going to talk about. Uh, jumped into the Hollywood scene, has done a lot of different projects, uh, notably the Mayans role, which I'd love to talk to you a little bit about, as well as Lucy Shimmers and the Prince of Peace. He's the author of the book Borderline, Defending the, the Home Front. He's the host of his own podcast called Vinny Rock, He's the creator of Light the Fuse, which is teaching men different modalities to heal past traumas. And he put the ghillie back in ghillie suit. The Mayans fans will <laughs> notice that reference. Uh, welcome to the stage, Vincent Vargas. <laughs> Thank you. I like it. I like it. <laughs> I, had to, I had to shit that one at the last minute. But, uh, uh, what's, what's your favorite thing about being on the Mayans? Uh, man, you know, all the years of doing like military and special operations and shit. It's like physical, 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 physical. It was really cool to be on a show, but have to use mental, like yeah. a mental capability, right? My brain, my creative side. And so uh, I didn't realize how much I missed the creative side of my life uh, while doing the military because it's so fun and then law enforcement is so fun. Uh, but when you got back to the creative side, I was like, oh man, I could really, I could do this every day and be happy, be content. Yeah. yeah. Is there a least favorite thing? Uh, you know, <laughs> Being military, being former law enforcement, you know what I mean? You're kind of sometimes uh, public enemy number one in, in Hollywood that, that's just kind of heavy liberal, which I'm not like a politically left-right kind of guy. I don't, I don't like, you know, it's not my identity of anything. But it wasn't, it was common to hear things like references against law enforcement, against military. Why are we even doing it? You know, and it was just like, that's a hard thing to pill to swallow yeah. when you're surrounded by a lot of people that just don't understand that or don't have the same kind of patriotism or, or, or respect towards the country. Yeah. That uh, makes, makes sense. That would be tough for sure. Uh, what's the last full book that you read? Uh, the last full book I read was called green lights by Matthew McConaughey. Oh, no shit. It was dope, dude. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's dope. Cause you yeah. know, it's even cool. Cause I read half of it, read it, the other half audiobook Cause I was driving it at the point, uh, I was driving to LA and back and, uh, the book was dope. The audiobook was just as good, you know, cause it's him talking. It's almost yeah. like a freaking podcast, but, yeah. 
really cool dude. The way he sees life, uh, it was just kind of a, it was nice to see. Yeah, that's good. Uh, if you were to open your phone up, what's the last song that was played out of whatever music app that you? Uh, oh yeah, it's gonna be. I think it's Bailey Zimmerman. It's gonna be House on Fire, dude. That's some that you know who that is. I don't. It's country music. Oh, is it? Yeah. Oh shit. You listen to country music? <laughs> I actually don't. That's that's about the one uh, really one type of music that I just don't don't enjoy. Really, I mean, there's a, a handful of songs, but. Uh, I, yeah, just man, I, for me, it's fucking depressing. Most of it, I love know? it, dude. Like, I, you know, I, 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 I enjoy the sadness, dude. I, uh, I can't stand it. I played college baseball in Kentucky, but I actually played in Kentucky in a summer one year. And first song I ever heard was Tim McGraw's "Don't Take the Girl." Absolutely yeah. fucking depressing song. Yes, yeah. but it was like fuck because I grew up on rap, right? Yeah. I grew up on hip hop and rap yeah. and everything. And so now uh, my whole family we listen to country music. Yeah, that's wild, man. Uh, what's your normal morning routine on a day when you're in town? Uh, wake up. Uh, if I wake up early enough, I'll go to jujitsu class or a Muay Thai class. It's the same. You know, I go to CJJF here in town. Um, and then kids go to school. So I, I drive one of my sons to school. My oldest son, he usually rides his bike. And then my daughter, we drop her off. And then my little man, we take him to his little daycare kind of, it's like a pre-K something kind yeah. of school. And then me and my wife head to the gym, work out together. And yeah. then by 1030 is kind of when my phone opens up to start taking meetings and calls and working on different things. I'm currently, you know, working on my master's in psychology. I'm currently writing several scripts, working on another book. And then I also run several little companies. And so just kind of day to day, just getting things done. Yeah. So you, you carve out, like, from the time you get up until 1030, there's no business. It's no, all, that's all family time. Yeah, 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 that's that's just kind of getting things done. Yeah. Amen. My time. No, I, I like it. I'm the same way. I, I do the same uh, same kind of thing. Um, do you eat anything first thing, or do you? Uh, well, you know, I've kind of gained a lot of weight recently, so, like, <laughs> I've kind of pivoted what I eat in the mornings. Yeah. No, but I've jumped into, like, you know, I have, like, a shake in the morning and get ready for the workout kind of thing, yeah. and then I eat something healthy after we, we yeah. work out. That routine is kind of... I'm trying to stick to that for a while. Yeah. Uh, you know, the strike is still going on, so I don't have work. Yeah. But I'm going to need to get to yeah. work, and I'm going to need to chase some good roles. <laughs> yeah, no, I hear you. I, well, I heard that, uh, wasn't it as of yesterday, they signed yeah. a deal? The writing strike, yeah, yeah, but the acting strike's still on. Oh, so the SAG you. is still, still, so the writing side can get to work on my life, but yeah. the acting side still waiting. I didn't realize those were separate. Two different unions, yeah, and there's That's also right. the DGA, too, which is directors, so... You know, if they decide to go on strike too, we'll still be on a standstill. Uh, can you layman's terms synopsize what the problem was? Uh, it's kind of it's a kind of a multiple different things. I think everyone's always asking for more pay. Uh, I believe the the introduction to the streaming systems have kind of changed how payments go for actors as well as well as like how the pay structure works for production companies and so on and so forth. But as well as the strong argument that's going on is the AI. You know, the introduction of AI and people using AI in writing rooms. In writing rooms, you have usually you know, <coughs> four, five, six people. Uh, when you introduce AI, it could potentially take away half those jobs, if not almost all the jobs besides one. And so they're just trying to fight for protecting their, uh, their job, protecting their space, as well as getting fair pay. It's kind of like the idea of, you know, as much as actors get paid, writers get paid, but not not all the writers get paid fair wages to the point where you can actually yeah. survive. Yeah. So it's a challenging field. Um, but I mean, I can't argue. Everyone gets paid pretty comfortable. If yeah. you're on a good, if you're on a good show, you get paid pretty comfortable, yeah. but you know, just trying to protect that, you know, yeah. want the longevity of that career field. So you don't have to go from writing on a show and then go straight back to your nine to five job. Yeah. A uh, little oddball or off, off the cuff uh, question. Do you have a, a favorite show as far as writing is concerned? Like, is, is there a show that, sets the bar for how well written it is. Uh, 
I, dude, it's kind of like shooter preference, right? Kind of thing is like, I just enjoy certain things. I really love drama, uh, 1883 by, by Taylor Sheridan. Like his whole thing is fun. Um, but 1883 for me, having a female lead, uh, always draws me in and having a strong female lead to pull all the emotions. Uh, for me, I just really love, and there's a show called all American. It just hits close to home in a sense where I just relate to a lot of the content in it. And it's just, they, they know how to hit the drama, right? Right. Yeah. Timing of the drama or like, I don't know. I think it's shooter preference. Really how that works is like, yeah. I just enjoy those two shows and they're starkly different, right? They're completely different, yeah. but uh, they both have something to them that, that evokes emotion, which I love. I love the honesty of emotion. Yeah. What are the two key components for canine success? That's effective training and proper nutrition. Fueled by Team Dog brings those two components to your family and best friend. The perfect nutritional balance that results in a higher mental acuity, energy, overall vitality, and even an improved appearance. Every product you will find in my company's store was born from the battlefield and not from the boardroom. Let my life's work help you become your dog's hero. Going back to the just real quick on the strike with the AI stuff, is that something that uh, that you've messed with? Like, is it something that yeah, you've definitely? You know, I feel like you got to get ahead of it and see what it's about. You know what I mean? Yeah. I've, I actually, so I had this concept I want to be writing, or I've been kind of writing, and then I was like, man, I wonder if I give the prompt, will it give me? And it gave me like four pages of a really good scene that was not far off from what my original intention of the scene was, and so I can I can see how. <clears throat> there's a threat there, how fast it wrote, you know, five pages and nothing, you know, yeah. and I wrote five pages in probably like three hours. Yeah. Right. So like, uh, there is uh, something to be said about it, but you know, what it does lack is true emotion, right. True connection of, you know, human connection, how that works. Yeah. But, um, what I believe think people are using it first, kind of develop the shell of it and then go in and edit it, which means you don't need as many writers. Yeah. You know, what's interesting. There, there's kind of a, I don't know, a, a strange, I don't know if you'd call it a double-edged sword or a dichotomy to um, using AI, like companies, corporations using it to get rid of jobs or we'll take, you know, Hollywood, let's say that, you know, they managed to use AI so that they can, you know, fire 90% of the workforce. Well, if, if every industry does that, you're essentially using efficiency or, or you're, you're, you're taking efficiency and, and turning it into something that's ultimately going to put you out of business really yeah. because like if 90% of the world now doesn't have a fucking job, they can't buy your products. Yeah. You know, so to me there, there's a weird, it, it is strange. I, there's like that's, rabbit hole. Almost, yeah. It, you, know? you have to really put parameters on this, right? Yeah. Like content creators can use it for like developing their, you know, their, whatever it is, right? Like their, their 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 comments or whatever the case you can use them for certain tools if you want to make make your life easier but when the way it's going like how far is it to the point where it actually someone just uses an ai version of you and animates you and then that that podcast is being held you know yeah. has show like how far are we we're not that far yeah we're not that far from people taking your voice from every single one of your podcasts and and moving forward with it right yeah. i try to actually i wanted them to use ai for my audiobook like dude you have enough of my voice can we just audiobook my voice into it the, they're like no because you know some companies don't even accept that because they yeah. could identify as, as like because i'm just being lazy but like yeah. i also don't like to read it's like you know <laughs> so i had to go do my audiobook and everything yeah. but it was just like wow. where can i where can ai actually help me but as yeah. well as like where does I, it end yeah exactly yeah. it's like this weird 
John Connor Terminator rabbit hole. Oh, like, man, and I'm a huge fan of that whole world yeah. of it because I believe that we're not far from that. Yeah. Terminator 2 is one of the best movies of all time. <laughs> yes. I mean, ha- hands down. No, no two ways about it. Uh, so where are you originally from? Uh, originally from Los Angeles, California in the San Fernando Valley. And uh, could you kind of uh, describe your childhood of growing up there, I'm assuming in the yeah. 80s? Yeah, I grew up, I was born in 81, so I grew up there kind of like uh, late 80s, early 90s, really when I was coherent enough to really understand what the hell was going on. But, you know, the 90s is the gang era, man. Gangs everywhere. Uh, every street you can think of that your friends lived on, there was probably a gang that associated with that street. You know, Langdon, Orion, freaking whatever it is. And and for us, we kind of knew which streets were dangerous to not go down. None of us who, those of us who played sports weren't usually involved in gangs. And kind of vice versa. Usually if you weren't in sports, you're probably involved in gangs. Yeah. Uh, my father was a gang member back, back in the day before he joined the Marines. Uh, and he joined the Marines subsequently because he got arrested for getting into a gang fight. And back then it was, you know, belts and pipes and chains and stuff. It wasn't and knives, right? But it wasn't guns. My dad's era was more like you create a community of of, of your streets to protect each other from whatever it is, whether it's yeah. cultural or whatever it is, right? And he was Puerto Rican, moved to LA, and he just joined a Mexican gang because there was no Puerto Ricans in LA at the time. It wasn't as many as as, as you would see now. And so he got arrested for getting into a fight and hitting someone with a pipe. Um, and then it was his option to go to the to the military and so he joined the marines and it just as as my time came around it came into gang banging right it was graffiti tagging and then boom taggers turned into gang bangers as well it was this really weird transition so i was fortunate enough to kind of be around it and see the culture of it grew up in the culture of it but never was involved in it because sports was what my father made me do yeah my older brother was involved in it in his own way he became like kind of an underground uh underground rapper that kind of talked about the, the culture his whole goal not goal but he didn't realize what he was doing i don't think at first but they were really just kind of the voice of those who were on you know the the less who didn't have a voice right the 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 lower income the the middle class lower class who are in the streets and kind of finding a home right and a lot of these guys who are gang members just looking for love right yeah. like just like we were in the military looking for a community they, they did too yeah. and so i grew up in that world of it but i focused a lot on sports and my mother and father you know fortunate they're still married and just had them both to be be kind of like beacons of showing me what's the right and wrong to do and and trying to do my best to, to be successful in that and I took baseball as far as it would take me. Yeah. Uh, you have just one brother? I have an older brother. And I have two sisters. One's a twin sister and one's an older sister. Oh, no shit. Yeah. Did they, were they into sports too? Or? Oh, yeah. We were all sports. Yeah. yeah. Um, my sister, she played softball with me in, you know, in high school. She's in softball and I'm in baseball. She played volleyball. I played <clears throat> football, right? And so my older sister as well, she was a good runner and also a softball player. Yeah. And did your brother play sports? He played a little bit, yeah. He, when he, by the time he got to high school, you know, he started smoking weed and start tagging, and then he started joining. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, he went yeah. the different route. He yeah. went the route that you know none yeah. of us took. Yeah. Did you uh, talk to your dad much, or did he talk to you growing up about gangs and staying out of them, or, or was that not? No, it, you know, I learned all about him through his actions. You know, my dad was a very "don't disrespect me, don't tread on me" kind of guy. Um, he will fight anyone at any time, and and I was fucking terrified of the dude because he just had a version of him that was like, damn, this dude is crazy. Yeah. But he never, he was a man of actions, not of words, really. Like, I didn't have the mentorship, I think, that I try to do for my son because, I don't know, he, he just worked his butt off, and, you know, he would say very little. He never said, don't join a gang. It wasn't like that. He was like, you're playing sports. Yeah. That's kind of how he... And so I played sports year round from four years old all the way up, you know, um, I just never thought about joining a gang. I never, 
you know, I had friends that were involved and I had friends who were, you know, I had friends die from, from gang violence, but I never thought like I should get jumped in because I wasn't really in those circles to have a moment of, I, I've been at parties where people get jumped in. like, you good? I'm like, no, I'm good, bro. You know what yeah, I mean? Cause yeah. like, I'll stay away, yeah. but it just wasn't my world. And my dad never really spoke on it. It was yeah. just kind of, I was expected to play sports and, and play it all the time. And if I stopped the sport, he would find another sport. Yeah. Uh, in that area of where you grew up and at that time, was it kind of the, the usual suspects gang-wise or were there weird offshoots? There was people- a lot of weird offshoots. So that era, it's it's kind of interesting, and, and people who probably understand the gang world probably don't, but you have your Bloods and your Crips, right? You have Everyone knows those guys. You have your, your Matasabatruchas, right? Your MS-13s, right? You had your Sureños, which is a big thing, but the Sureños were kind of interesting because you could identify as being Sureño but still have a street. And so where I was at was this time where, man, we're getting into crazy stuff here. So the Mexican mafia kind of like took a bunch of people under their belt, and that's why they have the 13, right, the Tresa that they have. And that represents that they're partnered up with the Mexican mafia, essentially the foot soldier for the Mexican mafia. And so a lot of these younger uh, generations wanted to make them proud and hopefully go up the chain of command eventually become a Mexican mafia member. And you started at one of these lower-end gangs that took the, the Tresa, the 13. And that was kind of a... Um, that was, a, a, I guess, a truce that w- the Mexican gangs are all going to take the 13. That means we're all together, so there should not be gang-on-gang violence in those two cult- in those in those gangs. Yeah. So where I lived, it was like every Mexican gang you can think of. You know what I mean? You have Tortilla Flats. You had Bacas, like Pacoima. You had you know all these different streets that were gangs. But as that happened, you stopped seeing a lot of that kind of like internal violence, and it turned into kind of a bigger, bigger machine. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's crazy. I mean, it's it's a it's such a like a subculture that you know is part glorified in in you know pop culture, Hollywood, et cetera. But it's also, I mean, for a reason. I mean, most things aren't turned into you know pop cultural. I wouldn't say icons, but big aspects of of pop culture for no reason. You know, I mean, yeah, it, it was it, it had big impacts on our lives. You know, and and it's it is a culture of mine. It yeah. is a culture like. Uh, I used to dress that way. You know what I mean? Well, I wasn't a gang member. So what, but what were you rocking back then? Oh, my God, bro. I had... Do you have any pictures of that yet? I, dude, I found one somewhere, but it wasn't like full on. I used to have, you know, Ben Davis shirts that were way too big. What I wear now, 2X, 3X, right, is what I wear now. I wore in high school. <laughs> Size 38 pants is what I wear now. And I actually wear some 36s, but in high school, I wore 36 and 38s. And, dude, yeah. I was 100 man yeah. 170 pounds yeah dude i don't know i don't understand what it was but oh, it was it was genu- genuinely it was our culture yeah. you know i was raised off old school um music motown music i was raised uh understanding which streets to go down what's not what colors to wear what not all that stuff it was it wasn't nothing a big deal until i left la to realize like oh man that's yeah. a different world yeah and so obviously you played baseball and and in high school, you were good enough to, for it to take you to college. Yeah, you know, I didn't score. I, I'm dyslexic. I had I graduated high school at a fifth grade reading level, so I never took the SATs. I took the practice SATs, and I, I screwed that up pretty bad. And so, uh, I knew that going to junior college would give me an opportunity to hopefully get drafted out of junior college. Just high hopes. Uh, I thought I was good. I don't know if I was good enough at the time to get drafted, but but left-handed, throw hard, and also I could hit well. Um, you know, after two years of junior college. Uh, got into a little bit of trouble here and there, but I ended up getting a full ride to an NAIA college in Kentucky. And so I played the NAIA college in Kentucky until academically ineligible, <laughs> lost my full ride, and uh, off to the military I went. Yeah. Was, was that uh, almost kind of like 
your dad's decision years later if it was like well you can no my brother was the one who who said it he was really? like yeah because you know at the time i have a daughter who was born you know academic and eligible i, I have no real skill set outside of baseball i never you know knew i could do anything outside of that i never wanted to uh and then my brother's like hey dude the military was really good for dad i think it maybe it may be good for you yeah. and at first i was like Get out of here, dog. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't want to go to the military. You know I mean? Like, I wanted nothing to do with the military because what my dad presented, right? My dad was a very tough, stoic dude. Yeah. You wake up at 7 a.m., half the day is gone. That's what he'd say. Half the day is gone. Get up. And you're like, Jesus, dude. It's 7 a.m., bro. Yeah. You know? And so I didn't want none of that. And yeah. then I found myself kind of backed in the corner. I was like, well, fuck it. If I'm going to do it, let's do it. Yeah. 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 Uh, I hope that you had the best hand grenade toss in uh, in Ranger Regiment. <laughs> I was, I tried my. Hey, look at, I was true blue. Got my my my, you know they call it the, your expert infantry badge because I I threw my grenades good. So yeah. yeah, I did my best. Yeah, that's good shit. Um, what was the the thought process or kind of catalyst for going into the Rangers? Um, you know, I always knew I was pretty athletic. I could play every sport decently. You know, I was good enough to play a lot of sports. I felt I was tough enough to handle it as well. And so when I went to the recruiter, I asked them for like, what's the toughest thing you got? And they said, special forces or army ranger. I already watched Black Hawk Down. So I'm like, dude, I want something like this, you know? Um, and when I took the test, I scored a 108 GT score, which is you need a 110 to, to get approved for special forces. They didn't have a waiver at the time, so I could only go for Ranger. And so I just took that contract when it came available. Yeah. Um, going in, what, what was your expectation versus reality? I thought everyone was going to be fucking studs, dude. I thought everyone was going to be like athletic monsters. I remember we played basketball one day, and it was like, what the fuck is really? going on? These dudes are not athletes. They're not impressed. They're not athletes, yeah. yeah. They, and, it's, and it was an interesting thing to, that I had to get over. Like, I thought everyone in special operations would be – super badass athletes and it wasn't the case but everyone was extremely tough and willing to scrap you know what yeah. i mean so they were more based on having heart to do whatever it needs to yeah. but not athletically inclined so i mean is it um safe to assume then that physically it wasn't much of a challenge for you yeah no it wasn't i think i was surprised i surprised myself i've never been pushed hard enough to even question whether i can handle it or not i did hell week in football and that was like scary when i was younger and I just like, that's the only thing I could kind of like identify the difference. Yeah. Uh, when you got to rip, it was kind of like, I started getting in better shape and better shape and better shape. And I'm like, fuck, I'm running really good. I can handle a ruck really well. And I'm not a small dude. Like I was kind of a bigger dude compared to most. And I surprised myself that how it just, I st people started saying like, oh dude, you're a PT stud. I'm like, am I? Oh shit. And I guess yeah. after all the, you know, the time in the training, I started to realize like, oh, I can actually manage this really well. And yeah, I started, the PT started becoming easy enough and I can carry a lot of weight. And so I just, it all came pretty naturally compared to testing. You know, I almost failed out because I failed the test uh, to get into graduate RIP. There's like an army, uh, an army ranger history test. I failed the first one and then I barely passed the second one. I even yeah. called my mom and said, like I did everything I could physically, but mentally, you know me, yeah. I'm going to, I might fail. She goes, it's all right, sonny boy, do your best. I was yeah. like, all right, yeah, somehow well. passed that bad boy. Was the was the mental pressure that they put on you was that stressful or tough or in Ranger Battalion stuff? Yeah. No, you know yeah. I've always kind of I wasn't sure what to expect, and I enjoyed like to see how crazy it could get. Like yeah. it was something I was like, "Wow, this is kind of fucked up," you know. And, and I would laugh about it. You know, yeah. I I don't think I ever got pushed to a point where I really genuinely felt like there was a threat that I might quit. 
until the until I joined the Border Patrol. There was yeah. a, there was a moment, but yeah, in the military, it all sucked. But at the same time, it was all manageable. Yeah, you know, Ranger School itself was like that was tough, but I I, I wasn't stressed about it as much as I I think some people might be. I yeah. always found humor in a lot of it. Yeah. Um, did you make it straight through? Yeah, I yeah. went through RIP straight through, got to Ranger Battalion, did uh, two deployments before I went to Ranger School. Because you know how it goes. Like, we have to get to Ranger Battalion first, and then you get a slot to go to Ranger School. I got a slot to go to Ranger School before my Iraq deployment, but I turned it down for the opportunity to go to Iraq. I'm like, I'm not going to miss this. Let's go to Iraq. And then eventually when I went to Ranger School, um, yeah, I went straight through. Uh, any Were there any uh, guys senior guys that when you showed up being you know a bigger dude that can handle yourself etc did any of them like try to haze you take a shot at the title and you end up getting in fights with dudes <laughs> yeah or? i was well you know in my group my peer group who showed up to Ranger Battalion, there was a few of us that were older you know it was that weird age where like we watched 9-11 happen we tried to figure out our lives for a couple of years and then decided to go in you know and so i was 23 at the time yeah. i had one of my partners there was 25 another guy was 20 you know what i mean so we were not the 17 year old 18 year old kids showing up to ranger battalion so i think that alone we already had some kind of respect but there's a phasing you know uh, there's a phase in ranger school ranger battalion that they, they fuck you up no matter what like yeah. You're going to earn your keep. They're going to dust you off all day long until they know that you can handle it. And yeah. so you definitely go through all that whole phase of things. But eventually, you know, I started to gain a little bit of respect for guys. And, you know, I grew up boxing. I grew up fighting. I, you know, I already did a year of jiu-jitsu before joining the, board, uh, joining the military. And so um, when I got challenged to do, we do a lot of combatives in Ranger Battalion. Challenged to do combatives. I did well. I held my own, you know. And, yeah. and so it became a thing. And, you know, uh, I just gained a little bit of respect as, as you go. Yeah, that's fucking great. Um all right, so you skip Ranger School, you go to an Iraq deployment. What year was that? 2005, Mosul. So that's a fucking busy, busy, gnarly the, time to be there. That was the show right yeah. there, yeah. All right, so I want to talk to you real quick about a product I've been using for a long time, long time sponsor and supporter of the show, Mudwater. Uh, got rid of coffee, switched to Mudwater. Uh, it tastes great. I like to mix my uh, Bubs collagen and, uh, and MCT oil powder with it, uh, a little bit of vanilla drops, and uh, it's fantastic. Um, it's got a host of different ingredients. There's cacao and chai for a hint of caffeine and kind of a hot chocolate type flavor. There's lion's mane for focus. Cordyceps to promote natural energy and uh, both chaga and raishi to support a healthy immune system. It's Whole30 approved, 100% USDA certified organic, non-GMO, gluten-free, vegan, and kosher. Uh, they do donate monthly to support psychedelic research and they have since day one. Uh, go get your free frother and free samples of coconut creamer and sweetener if you go to mudwater, M-U-D-W-T-R.com forward slash Mike. Uh, on that link, you get all the samples, the frother for free, and that's mudwater, M-U-D-W-T-R.com slash Mike for that free author, uh, free frother rather. So it's a great product. I've been using it for a long time. Uh, you don't get the upset stomach or the jitters with the tons of caffeine and coffee. Uh, and it's a great vehicle to add uh, whatever other supplements you want to throw into your morning routine. That's mudwater.com slash Mike. Hurricane season is here, as well as uh, incredibly hot temperatures across the country. Uh, whether it's a hurricane, a natural disaster, or power outages because of the heat, you always want to be prepared. I've been working with this company uh, for Patriots, which are survival food kits. They're hand-packed in the USA they last for up to 25 years. They come packed inside covert storage totes. So you don't have people, you know, digging into your stuff. 
It includes a wide variety of delicious breakfast, lunch, and dinner, backed by thousands of five-star customer reviews. But it's not just for natural uh, disasters, um, uncertain supply chains, unpredictable emergencies. It's more important than ever to have a backup plan. Uh, and right now, you can go to fourpatriots.com and use the code MICDROP, all one word, to get 10% off your first purchase on anything in the store, including the emergency food supply kits that last up to 25 years. Just go to Four Patriots, that's the number four patriots.com, and use mic drop one word, 10% off your first purchase. Fourpatriots.com, code mic drop. Was there a point um, at which, you know, because it sounds like different than most people's paths, you know, as you're going through it, it's not a huge challenge. There, you know, it wasn't that yeah. big of a deal. Showing up to Iraq and, and boots on the ground, and now it's a two-way range. Like, yeah. was there an epiphany point there where you're like, dude, this is a fucking no joke? Yeah, there was a, definitely fear, right? Even my first deployment, there was fear. I was like, God, I, could, I, I felt like if I applied myself like I am now, I could have done anything. My father's a 32-year, you know, L.A. City firefighter, right? I already passed the written test, and I ignore the fucking oral exam to go to a baseball game. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I kept sitting and thinking about that. Like, I mean, I, I'm in Afghanistan on, on a hill aside, you know, waiting to either ambush or get ambushed, you know, and I'm sitting there like, what the fuck am I doing here? I could have easily applied myself and done anything else. So it was just kind of like I questioned, like, why was I so dumb and so immature to not do more before this opportunity? And why did I need this to fucking motivate me? Is there a regret? Not regret, but more so like, I can't wait to get out to fucking show the world what I can do. That's kind of the thing. It was like, okay, now that I'm here, when I get a fuck out, I'm going to do this. You know yeah. what I mean? And so yeah. when I was in Iraq, um, that's when I w was questioning my faith a lot. Really? You know, that was my biggest of like, what the fuck is going on? You see things in war that, that you question. You see things in war that like, I expected to go to war and people would die. And more so them than us because we're special operations. You you know, you expect that, and that wasn't uncommon to see. And and I wasn't extremely uncomfortable with that at all. I was uncomfortable with like all the other shit you see. Like, it's just like cities fucked up. You know what I mean? Like, it's just really. It's it was. I was severely empathetic to it, and it hurt the way I believed in God. I guess. And it, yeah. Were you faithful growing up? Uh, forced Catholic, you know how it goes. You know, your parents Catholic, you show us, uh, you know, church every Sunday. I did my, you know, I did my, com uh, my communion, did all that. Um, baseball, as I got older was on Sundays and then that took over my Sundays was became baseball. And so being forced, uh, to, to have that faith, I really never wanted to take it on. Uh, I definitely did my prayers. I did my whole thing. And because it became my social norm of what we did as I got older, um, when I was in Kentucky, is when I started to kind of go to Bible study that wasn't Catholic, and I started to really appreciate the Bible. I appreciated learning the stories of the Bible and understanding the concepts behind them and, like, the, the lesson points I guess I can take from a lot of it. So that's when I converted to Christianity. And, and then life just got really hard. I lost baseball. So I'm like, what are you doing, God? You know? I had a daughter, and there wasn't a good relationship with the mother. So what are you doing, God? You know what I mean? And I kept, like, this frustration of it all. So actually, when I joined, I just kind of didn't care if I died or not. It was just like, what's the point anymore? I lost everything I loved, my, my baseball, you're right? And uh, I'll just join to, to see, what it, see what it is, and I'll do the hardest thing in infantry just so, like, m you know, maybe my family would be proud. You know, if I, if I died, serve my country, my family would be proud. You know, th like, that kind of, like, just didn't care. And it was kind of like, 
why why would why would God put me in this position in a sense? You know, and so when I got to Iraq, I was really really fighting with that. And I was actually talking to him often, right? It was this thing like, how can you like say you question God, but you talk to him all the time? It's like, that's what I was doing. Like before missions, I'm like, all right, God, you know, and we'd have these conversations in my head and I talk about like, I, I felt bad for my kids that I wanted to be around at the same time. I, I, I was just like, so just like, let's just do this, you know? And that was probably the most significant thing. I was, we had a lot of action during that deployment, you know, the, 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 platoon it was an extremely successful uh deployment where we had a mission complete on our the the head terrorist uh organization the head of it we wanted to catch him right that was the goal of the deployment and we ended up doing that right and so you know presidential citation awards all these things right uh very successful but i learned a lot about myself in that in that those four months of running and gunning mission after mission and every you know, in route to every single one of these missions, the conversation with God. Do you recall the high value target's name? Abu Taha. Really? Yeah. He, so he was like the head uh, Al Qaeda affiliate there. Yeah. Al- yeah. I don't know if it's Al Qaeda, but yeah, I believe it was. But yeah. yeah, you know, we were we were running ops. It was um, kind of we're doing TST missions, time sensitive target missions, as well as QRF missions on the days we weren't TST. Uh, and then uh, you know, counter to us was uh, you know CAG dudes, so they're running every ops a day. And uh, we started, you know, knocking out targets and gathering intel and, and doing the same thing, right? Building more intel information to get to the next mission. And, you know, we did like something like 150 something missions in four months. Like it was wow. just money. I mean, we would go on a striker, hit a house, boom, all these phones would ping off because we caught one dude and that would set up four more missions that night. Yeah. And so we'd come back, we'd, we'd, we'd put him into to, to his holding. They started, you know, questioning him. Boom, we get food, we reload. Boom, we jump out to the next one. And it wasn't a common to do three and then boom, fly to the next one, you know. And it's so like one night we'd knock out four or five missions and just wow. like smoked. But snatching every dude that, that, that pings on these phones, that they're all connected, right? Like yeah. at the time it was just like, it was almost easy in the sense that they were texting like, here they come. And they're like, oh, well, who did you text? Yeah. Got them. You know what I mean? And so, yeah, we'd run four or five missions in a day. Wow. It would be um, pretty hectic, but pretty fun. You know, like, yeah. I mean, some of these objectives were like hit and go. It was like show up to the door, kick in the door, blow the door, whatever it was, clear the house, snatch the dude up. You know what I mean? The, the phrase, right? We use the phrase when we catch the dude and boom, we're out. And I was like, this is crazy. Yeah. It's like old school when they snatch the dude from the freaking parking yeah. lot and yeah. you know, pulls him in. That's what it feels like sometimes, yeah. man. And, and yeah, man, we did that and so on and so forth until we started really chopping down who we were chasing and uh, boom. Did they get smart to your guys' tactics and you had to adapt? Yeah, you know, you know how it goes. You're on objective and... You know, these terms already been used. I, I'm so uncomfortable even using because I've been trained not to use them, but but things like touchdown and, and things like that, right? Yeah. And so, like, um, when you when we saw the phone, we were we, early on, we didn't think about what we were giving them. And so we were like, oh, got a phone, you know, and you raise it. And everyone's like, God, I've got the phone, right? And so then you start using a code word for phone, but you're still holding it in the air and waving it. So I think they started to see that. And, and also they started to hide their phones and they started to like break their, their, their chips, you know, and those things that we didn't expect that they were so knowledgeable enough onto. And as well as like the dissemination of information, right. They're telling each other, like it started getting harder and harder to find the phone. Yeah. I started finding more, more memory cards and they're broken or something like, you know what I mean? So, yeah. Very interesting how that works, but yeah. Yeah. Um, did you guys have any operations that you went on that, that like just went sideways horribly wrong where it was like 
you got ambushed or you kicked over a hornet's nest and got. You know, there was a, you know, there's a day where, you know, we're doing these TST missions. They're very, there's, they're, you know, they're high value targets, right? And so we had a couple that were during the day. And we had a, we had like a three day run where it was like, all right, we're headed to, we're about to head to a funeral. You know, we're like, look, they're all going to be there. So we're going to the funeral, right? And so we're, we're boom, we're, we're moving to the funeral. And then boom, one of our trucks gets hit, right? And so we're like, damn. So we get out of the vehicle and so several of our dudes are hurt and the vehicle's like, doesn't work anymore. So we had to figure out that. And so we had to get a QRF to get us in and get us out, get these guys for medical attention, right? The vehicle right in front of me, right? Just boom. And then after that day, the next day, like, boom, the, the phones were going off. And so we're just getting all this intel. And then, boom, a day mission, which for us was like, hold up. Like, yeah. I'm not used to doing day missions because yeah. I like to work at night because we had, that's our, our, you know, our advantage to this. All of a sudden, you had a day mission. And we had this one day mission where the whole thing felt weird. It felt creepy just rolling in there. The town at like 12 o'clock in the afternoon and sun's up, you know, um, in two days in a row. So first day in that same little town. As we're going, we have a little bird who's kind of covering us, and they don't fly during the day. Sixty don't fly in a day, you know. They they had to that day, and they got shot at, and it hit the hit the 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 pilot got hit, and the, the co-pilot was able to kind of control it and take it back, and then that was crazy. So we're like, damn, this is getting crazy in the day. And then on the exfil of that mission, it was a mission the next day, I believe it was. But it was like four days in a row, just contact, contact, contact. That was just getting frustrating. But um, as we're trying to leave the objective, we there was a vehicle I saw was kind of doing this back and forth thing. And I'm on the saw gunner at the time. I'm on the side of my striker waiting for exfil. And I'm just kind of posting up on security while everyone's kind of getting into the vehicle. And I'm seeing it doing this shit. Right. I'm like, what the fuck is this guy doing? Maybe he wants to go home and we're just blocking it. Right. Maybe, maybe just, so I, I just kind of didn't think about it. Told my, told my NCO at the time said, Hey, so I got this, this fucking, the same old taxi you see all the time, white with like orange doors and shit. You're like, got this motherfucker kind of, doing weird shit he's like okay just keep watching I was like sounds good at one point he kind of turned towards me and this is probably about 100 yards away maybe close probably about 50 yards away and he's kind of doing the same thing towards me now so i'm like damn i'm gonna have to engage this fool you know and then all of a sudden they say actual 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 so they mount up mount up mount up and i get up get into the striker as i get into the striker what i don't see is that vehicle ends up going right into one of our other vehicles that's ahead of us about 50 yards right and hits that vehicle and so we pop we drop our 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 door our hatch and get out and start to pie off and you start seeing everyone's engaging like we're all engaged on this vehicle right anyone who's within reason couldn't engage on it and uh the top gunner was, was going off on until the vehicle kind of blew up in flames and and uh you know they engaged them what we assumed was that was an IED that just failed mm. and they just continued to try and engage with their AK-47. So they were shooting through their back windows at our vehicle. And so it's one of those days I was like, damn, man, this is good. Let's get out of here. You know yeah. what I mean? Cause like yeah. these day missions just keep you vulnerable, it, more and more vulnerable. It, it's an even playing field, if you will. Right. Yeah. And so it made it uncomfortable. And then the next day we ended up um, doing the same thing, kind of simultaneously hitting houses, boom, 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 boom. And then boom, someone threw a couple frags on, on one of our teams and, we run in there and ensue that that chaos of just madness going on, you know. Yeah. Wow. It's just crazy. It was a couple – the whole deployment was not if, it was kind of when there would be an engagement. We kind of knew there was a lot more activity. When you were in Mosul in 2005, it was – we were getting mortared every day, yeah. you know what I mean? In those, like, four days, five days in a row, was just kind of like – that's when I that's when I talked to God. I said yeah. – I said, and I haven't done this yet. My wife always yells at me about it. But I said, hey, God, do me a favor. You get me out of this because I have a daughter on the way. I said, yeah, I have a daughter on the way. I said, do me this favor. Do me a solid, right? Get me out of this. And I'll show up to church wearing a suit. 
And I say that because wearing a suit for me was unheard of. You grew up in LA and this, this, we don't wear suits. I've never owned a suit in my life. And so it was, it was a very big thought for me at the time to have a suit. Like, why the fuck would I ever have a suit? So I was like, I will show up in the most respectful form possible for you in a suit if you can get me out of this. And because I, I really wanted to be a part of my daughter's life. And that was like an emotional, like, find a way, please. Because yeah. now I will, like, do me that. Yeah. And uh, that was a heavy request for me for someone who's never owned a suit and never ever wanted to see myself in a suit and was already kind of frustrated with four days in a row having contact that all felt like, oh, God, this is one of them's going to be me. You know what I mean? And so that's when I kind of, I guess, mended my relationship with God. And, yeah. and you still haven't paid him back, huh? Bro, <laughs> I know, dude. My mom texted me about just recently about it. Yeah. And, you know, I will. Are you, um, are you waiting on something specific? Or I'm I'm absolutely uncomfortable wearing a suit to church. Really? Yeah, I go to church. I'm, I've just found a new church recently here in town, and I'm just uncomfortable showing up in a suit. It seems like even more reason to do it. Yeah, no, you're yeah. right. Yeah. All right. All, All right. This Sunday, I'll go with you. How about that? I'll do it if you want to. I mean, I, I will show up in a suit if, uh, if it gets you in a suit. I'll do it. All right. I'll have to get some <laughs> pictures of that shit. Let's do it. Um, all right, so... Four-month deployment to Iraq, super busy. Um, the, the the big mission, I guess, that you guys were there for, did that come at at a, an earlier point in the deployment, or when did that? It, it came probably like three months into it. Okay. in the Just in the back end of it. I yeah. mean, slowly getting to them, you know. Were there uh, operations leading up to that that went, uh, like, from a, a troop engagement or, or, you know, tick standpoint, where uh, you guys really had a, a super heavy gunfight? No, man. The biggest were these little altercations here and there the whole yeah. time, you know? Um, yeah, those were the biggest. I'm trying to think. I'm trying to get my deployments blended. But, no, those were the biggest engagements were this little ambush here, the, the frags here, the IED here. Yeah. Um, you know, our biggest thing was that every mission we had was like, this is the one. He's going to be here. We know it, <laughs> you yeah. know? And then it's like you go there and, and – no, not him, but someone else. Yeah. yeah. Uh, when you guys did get him, uh, was it a big, big celebration? You know, at first we didn't even know it was him. Really? You know, uh, what happened was we had a team stay the night at the house um, and waiting for him to come back because the intel is that he was going to back. And the team waited overnight. And when the team waited overnight, the next morning we came in to kind of pick them up again. But as on, on our way to pick them up is when he showed up, but not at that house, the house next door. And so, boom, we end up hitting that house. And I remember a few of us running right past him, like, boom, someone grabs him. Cool. Keep going. You know, kind of like clear the rest of the house. And um, we ran right by him and didn't even recognize. I don't even know who the hell the dude was. I remember seeing pictures, but like when you see him face to face, he kind of looked like a big, a big dude, but like very fair skinned. Yeah. And, Never, I never even realized until we actually had him. And then all of a sudden on the radio, they say, we got the fat man. We got the fat man. Dude, that's wild shit. Yeah. Um, when you guys went back, did you guys kind of fucking party it up a little bit? Like, hey, we got him? Or was Dude, it? I was, you know, I'm still a private. You know what I'm saying? In Ranger Town, if you don't got a Ranger tab, you're, you, you don't get to, you know. But I'm pretty sure our, our, our senior uh, enlisted had a good time. You yeah. know what I mean? I'm yeah. sure. It's a big deal. I, I know we smoked cigars. Yeah. That, for me, it was probably my first cigar I've ever smoked. Yeah, no shit. Yeah. So after that, did the mission change? I mean, obviously, if you got the guy, or did you just keep going? So when you caught him, every phone went crazy. Yeah. And so it had 20, 30 more missions. So we were just boom, boom, boom. So our tempo picked up, if not even more so. Yeah. And it just became everyone he's associated with started using their phones. Wow. Um, anything else from that deployment that stands out? 
No, I mean, it was just, it was probably the most exciting deployment of my life. And, and, you know, those group of men that with me were, were some of the biggest influences of my life. Yeah. You know what I mean? That next, after that deployment, I went on to ranger school and, um, I missed the next deployment to Ramadi. And in that next deployment, my, one of the squad leaders and team leaders, one of my, someone I looked up to, they were killed. And it was the first, you know, clearing a room type death that Ranger Battalion, Second Ranger Battalion had. We had a couple of deaths from an IED and things like that, but it was a huge hit. And I was in, uh, I, I was recovering from an injury from Ranger School. They didn't let me deploy with them because I had brachial plexus nerve damage. The right arm didn't work for a couple of months. And, um, you know, we received the call. And, uh, you know, I was, was honored enough to at least be able to take him to the final resting place. Yeah. And that was like, the hardest pill to swallow that I chose to go to school and then I got hurt in school and I couldn't be there for them. You know what I mean? So I carried that weight with me for a long time. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, man, that's, that's rough for sure. Did, uh, did that impact your psyche as it relates to continuing on serving? Did it make you vengeful? Did it make you question? It was a lot of things, man. I mean, I lost a really close friend to a training accident just a year before. So Devin Pugero was killed in a live fire exercise, which we do them all the time, right? And so unfortunately, uh, someone just didn't do their job that day and and a target kept falling and eventually fell into a spot where it became right in front of a hot wall, essentially where a route can go through. Uh, he was pulling security and it shot through and it hit him. Like a CQB kind of thing? Yeah. Absolutely. So it's called, I believe it's called Regensburg, whatever it is, but it's kind of a straight path and we just clear it as we go in two teams kind of thing. And um, that was like the first friend who died, but he died in training, which was kind of hard to imagine, right? That was the first time as a man, like I really kind of cried, you know, because I was like, put it two and two together. We went to basic training together. We went to airborne together. We went to rip together. He didn't graduate the first time because we got in a fight on the weekend in Columbus and they ended up making him restart because he lost his ID card. Like this, yeah. but, like we had history together, man. Uh, and a goal was for him to meet the family and he was supposed to come that week, um, but instead he was, he was killed in training. And uh, so that was heavy, and it was December, Jesus, it was December 16th, right, in 2004, or is it f five? Yep, in 2000, no, excuse me, 2004. And so I went to ranger school and graduated December 16th, 2005, which I was like, holy shit, like, what are the odds of that, right? And then um, when I graduated, I came back, my arm was injured, so I missed that deployment, and Sergeant Bras and Bram were killed. It was March 18th, uh, 2006. And so that kind of, those guys, all three were huge in my world. One, my friend, two, 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 I would consider friends as well, but biggest influences of my career and as well as, as being a man, how they led people, how they treated people. And um, to lose those, it definitely made me feel like, fuck, uh, those are the two best of the best and it made you feel vulnerable it made you feel like well if the two best can get taken out then who the fuck am i yeah and it started to like really intimidate me and actually psychologically i was just like i want to do more there's more out there for me and this isn't it and as much as i part of me wanted to pursue going to cag part of me wanted to try out and see how far i can go the other part was like yeah but what else can i do and and i, and I wanted to be a father to my kids you know how so, many kids did you have at that point? At that point, I had the two and had uh, one who was my, my ex-wife at the time was pregnant. Oh, okay. 
Yeah, so going into, so I, 2007 was my last deployment in Afghanistan, and I was like, in the first mission we had, got ambushed, right? Well, we, it was like we walked into an ambush, essentially. We, there was, there was dudes on the top of a roof. We had intel this house had, had bad dudes in it, cool. We walked in about like five clicks, whatever it was. Uh, you had overhead cover was talking about like six dudes on the roof. They're already, it looks like they're in fighting position. We're like, fuck, I got new dudes with me who just like just showed up fucking maybe three weeks prior. And I have this thing I used to tell them was like, get your minds right, get your minds right. And they knew what that meant. It meant like, we're about to fucking throw down, dude. You know, and so like, get your minds right. And they're like, all right, all right. And I'm sitting there thinking like, fuck, dude, the first fucking mission from losing dudes now four months later three months later whatever we're back in country and the first mission we're going to have engagements i had pucker factor like a motherfucker but i was more scared of the three nugs i had that had very little experience and i'm a team leader of my team uh you got the other team behind us it's alpha and bravo teams whatever the case in our squad leader right and so as we're walking up i'm still i'm i'm like okay fuck it here we go this is what we do we're in an alleyway uh, as the, we're going to be the main element. I'm going to be the, the main element going into, to, to clear the building. We're waiting on our breach element to start breaching as they started to breach. Brrr, they opened up on us from the roof, right? We had our third squad, uh, out there to doing some kind of outside coverage and they saw it. So they were engaging on them. Boom. They took a casualty. Dude got shot in the leg, right? Right away. And so you're hearing this on the radio and I'm like, Jesus fuck. We just, it's our first fucking mission, you know? Um, I had my team on the, posted on the wall, and I had my team starting to engage on the roof. Like, just aim and fire, dog. Like, just suppress fire, throw fire, do what you can. Um, and then you're seeing, like, just the wall, pop, 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 which taking rounds. And me and my, my saw gun at the time, I look and I was like, bro, they're shooting right at us. And he goes, yeah. I was like, fuck it, hey, dude. So we kind of peek around the corner, and everyone's kind of engaging on it until we can kind of get, the, I'm waiting for the radio call, like, what's next, you know? Um, Get a call from the backside security saying that they're, they're jumping out the back. Uh, a couple of those dudes, one dude got engaged, and then the rest is just kind of fled, and is, we're just in the chaos of it all. Um, and then we just backed off and just dropped bombs on it. You know what I mean? But I was like, Jesus, fuck, dude. So you guys didn't take any casualties? We, we just one dude got shot in the leg, yeah, yeah. That's it. But it was like the first mission back from losing dudes. Like, wow, that felt like worst timing my, my head was psychologically what a bad timing but at the same time it's like i mean which way better way to get into it than get into it yeah get right back on the horse, get right, right back on it uh how was the rest of the deployment mild man we we were able to we had a couple of things we we you know we we captured a few people that are pretty important and and the rest of it we went a week where we had to go cold because uh some some something that happened i think the seals had gotten into some trouble or something like that and they shut us all down yeah. <laughs> you know how that works it was something weird but it's it wasn't a surprise it, yeah it wasn't i know it was the seals they didn't want i'm just saying like you know there's so much going on at that time Hamid karzai arguments with 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 the, all of that stuff and so we're in the middle of that you know what I mean? and we couldn't we our ops couldn't continue if they didn't allow us to and so that happened during there, a lot of intel gathering, a lot of other things, but the rest of the deployment was pretty mild compared to that day. Yeah. Uh, and then you went and did a follow-on deployment, right? No, that was my last deployment, okay. 2007. Yeah, okay. that, that was it. You did one before then? Yeah, yeah. I did. My, when I first showed up, it was like 35 days in Ranger Ranger Regiment. Ranger uh, Regiment. This is after Pat Tillman was killed, right? Oh, wow. Like that whole scenario. I got there and was kind of seeing the aftermath of that, right? Yeah. People were flying back from country. Uh, his brother, other people that were injured and stuff like that. And we we're just like, Dude, I don't know, nothing what's going to, didn't even know what happened, right? I just yeah. still knew that he was killed, but the news of how didn't show up until like a week later, I was in battalion. We were like, oh, Jesus dog. 
Facebook. How, how did that impact you guys kind of community-wise once you found out what really happened? There was a lot of... There was a lot of frustration, man. A lot of internal just anger. A lot of the, you know, second platoon had every right to be just angry, but they just lost one of their friends. And they lost one of their friends in, in a way that's just like hard to hear, right? Yeah. You know, like we all understand like fogs of war and whatnot, but none of us, we weren't there. And the guys who were there, there was a lot of frustration and pain. Yeah. And I don't think it ever left them. Yeah. Do you remember all those life insurance ads on the radio when you were a kid? Probably not because that was for your parents to worry about. Well, guess what? Now you're the parent and now it's time to get life insurance to help protect your family. Fabric by Gerber Life makes it quick and easy to get high quality policy uh, so your family is covered if the unexpected happens. Fabric was designed by parents for parents to help you get high quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policies in less than 10 minutes. You can go from start to covered in less than 10 minutes with no health exam required. Join the thousands of parents who entrust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash mic drop, all caps, all one word. Again, that's meetfabric.com, M-E-E-T, fabric.com slash mic drop, all one word. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company are not available in certain states. Prices are subject to underwriting and health questions. All right, so you, you knock out three deployments <clears throat> as a ranger, and then you decide, okay, I want to get out. Yeah. Uh, what What was the thought process behind uh, going into a, a prison guard role? What's the fastest job I can get? You know, I can pay my family's bills. You know, I had my my son was just born, so that's my third child now. I understand. I was an E five making decent pay in the military, you know, as well as like jump pay and blah, 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 special operations pay, all this other crap, right? They call it team leader pay at the time. So getting paid pretty well. And then I had to come home and do that in the civilian side. And there was no job I can find that was even coming close to paying that tab. I had to do full-time work, which is at the prison system. It, it hired me within like, they hired me within like 17 days. And so I was like, cool, got a job, paid like $22 an hour, which at the time was like, perfect, let's do it. And then I went to school full time as well so I can get the GI Bill money to help pay pay as well. So doing both of those was the only way I was able to survive. So essentially it was a, a quick springboard out that uh, enabled you to do what you needed to do to yeah. set up the next thing. Yeah, a lot of people didn't want to do that. Yeah, I know it. I mean, most people won't do it at this point. You know, yeah. It's like they'll start an OnlyFans account instead. <laughs> fucking feet pictures and whatever um the the experience in that prison um what were your takeaways from that you know i got to it was it was so hard to to enter a room where you know everyone's a potential threat and not have a not have a rifle yeah you know what i mean like yeah. that that in itself was like i asked i was like why why don't anyone have guns like well because then you bring a gun to the fight you know what i mean i was like oh shit so all you have was a radio and you had just trust that your boys would be there you know what i mean and it's uncomfortable man it's uncomfortable because everyone in there they're in there for whatever reason right and good good and questionable whatever it is um it's you versus the whole room and that was intimidating it took me a minute to get used to that right. I, I got like i was saying earlier I, I, was, I was starting to say is i got into a fight with a dude and um it was the most intimate engagement of my life knowing that i was fighting with a guy who's in there for murder and who at that time was trying to fuck me up too yeah and i was like this is fucking you're not supposed to close hand hit anyone right because you get arrested or it's like breaking the policy of the prison like also now i'm assaulting but 
at that moment, I was getting, uh, you know, it was a cell extraction. They're both drinking. The two dudes in there, they broke their whole room. They had a porcelain toilet for some reason, so they cracked that off, and they're throwing it through the food trap, and they hit me with it already once. And and so when we opened up to get them with the sort team, right, um, first dude fell down, second dude fell down because they just buttered up the floor with soap and shit that made it slippery. And then it was me and him, and, and we're looking eye to eye, and I see his hand kind of moving slowly like this. And it was like time slowed down, and I was like, the fuck is he doing right in my head i'm like it looked like a conductor doing music but with a sock and i realized the sock had porcelain porcelain uh, toilet broken pieces in it and he was hitting me with it and that's when i was like oh fuck he's trying to fucking beat the fuck out of me with this this sock and and i'm hearing the thuds of it and i'm like frozen like frozen like what the fuck grabbed him and i just told myself like fuck it if i get fired i get fired and just started fighting and we just threw down in there. Eventually, he slipped. We both slipped out from under each other, and he went to stop himself. Boom, dislocated his shoulder. Oh, wow. And I'm still like, rah, rah, you know, because I'm fucking fired up right at that point. Yeah. They pulled me off. Eventually, we were able to cuff him and get him out of there. And, and I remember the whole thing was just like a fucking ordeal. Well, that's happening. This other dude's trying to get out of his cell, and they're fighting him. So, like, just to, it's, you're in 10 by 10, and you have, like, six dudes, seven dudes in this little space. It was fucking chaotic. Yeah. And I remember driving home thinking, like, what the fuck am I doing? Yeah. Like this is fucked up, you know, and that was a hard moment for me to know. I had to work the next day and I was like, mm, I'm going to call in sick. I called in <laughs> sick because I was like, I need to bring it. I need one day on this one, dog. Yeah. And then eventually went back and, and finished out another year. Wow. Uh, you, you mentioned the sort team. That's a yeah. cell extraction. Yeah, the sort team. I became a sort team member there within like the six months of being there. Um, it's the special operations uh, response team for the prison. Same thing. We have a selection. They they beat the fuck out of you. They they spray you with pepper spray and all that other thing, and they 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 hit you with all these all these all things you would use potentially if you need to on right. You get hit with all of that, and yeah. you learn how to stomp and drag. You learn how to do shield and all the things. And so, yeah, I went through that course before, yeah. and. Uh, you know, it's still, it doesn't matter. It's fucking yeah. It's you versus them, man. What the uh, the guy that you were uh, getting hands on with uh, size wise? How did he compare to you? Probably the same size. Not me now because I'm way overweight. You know what <laughs> I mean? <laughs> I'm a big boy now. Um, but you know, I was probably around two twenty at the time, and he was probably matching me, if not yeah. the same height as me. And he yeah. was in there for a gruesome murder, dude. Like yeah. he he murdered a female who was like door-to-door salesman. He pulled her into a house and and tried to kill her. And then he had trouble as he was trying to kill her that she wasn't dying. So he tried to strangle her. She didn't die. So he put a a belt around her neck and tried to strangle her. It didn't didn't work. And so then he poured bleach down her throat. It's like, I read that and I was like, this is the dude we got to go get? This this dude who has no boundaries of what he would do, right? I already knew that. So in the back of my head, I'm like, this dude is crazy. Do Do you know how old he was? Oh, I don't know. Probably he had to be around 25 in, yeah. in that frame. Jesus, man. Yeah. Uh, did you have any other instances like that? Any other cell extraction? A, a ton, man. I just sell it like crazy. Yeah. I mean, you got, I've done. What's all, the craziest one? Or was that? That was probably the close one-on-one ordeal that I had to like get through. And, and in the end, they use it as a training video because there was things that went wrong in how we did it. Yeah. From that point forward, we never entered a room until we got them to submit because there's rules behind that that you can. It felt like dire and it felt like they wanted us to go in. But the truth of the matter is the safest thing is to keep them in that room. And if they destroy it all, fine. As long as they're not bringing harm to themselves, keep being dumb. Yeah. Right? We could have blasted them with pepper spray. We could have done all kinds of stuff. We didn't. We tried to. They threw them out the back window. So when we felt 
all options were expended, we went in. Yeah. And it never should have happened. What we should have done was continue to blast them with fucking some kind of, you know, uh, non-lethal round and, and s any kind of like OCCS something just yeah. to get them to submit. And then that's the safest possible scenario. Yeah. And so future after that, it started becoming, like, okay, let's just blast them with more. And so here's a, here's one. I used to work in segregation when I didn't do sort. So sort was like a part-time gig. They called you when they needed you kind of thing. And uh, segregation, everyone in there's, you know, 23 hour segregation. They're just, they're, they're the worst of the worst. Um, and I went in there one day and they're just fucking mad because they weren't getting either their mail or they're tired of the food, whatever it is, they find reason to, to riot. And so they started rioting in their personal cells. So they're, they're flooding their cells. So there's piss and shit flowing down from the top floor to the bottom and it's just everywhere. And I'm getting frustrated and I'm like, I'm telling you, like, fucking quit. Fucking quit or else I'm going to fucking, I'll be back. And so there's like 16 cells. And I told him, like, go get me 16 rounds. And so I got a muzzle uh, a muzzle uh, blast. For, it's kind of a 40 mic mic kind of thing. M muzzle blast, fucking OCCS mix. And I fired it on the first fucking most aggressive dude. I know his name. I don't want to say it, but this dude was fucking <laughs> bad, bro. He, he tormented what, me my whole time. What was he there for? So it started with just a fucking fight at a bar. And then it turned into a, like an assault charge. Then he assaulted every fucking corrections officer you can think of. He tried to burn down his fucking own room. He, like wow. he was just, he turned into more charges by being in prison. Jeez. Yeah. So he, he's probably going to stay in there for life for how crazy he was. He was the type like, you can't, you can't pin him down. Yeah. I actually had to go get him one point because he overran an, a native Indian prison. So he took the keys from a cop, from a, from a, from a correction officer at a native Indian prison, right on a reservation. And then he took control of the whole fucking thing. The only reason he let go is because they said they were going to fucking snipe him. Wow. And he said, no, he submitted. And so they called us the sort team and said, come get this dude. We can't, can't control him. So we went and drove three, four hours to go pick this dude up in one side of Arizona, brought him to our prison. And he just continued to create hell for us. Native American guy. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, he was crazy. And so, yeah, so that dude, so I muzzle blast that dude. And then everyone else was like. No, we're good. See, yeah. <laughs> did that submit him? Yeah, everyone, yeah. everyone, yeah. shut them all down. Yeah, because yeah. they don't. Some don't realize that it's just a muzzle blast. They thought I was shooting him with like maybe a rubber mallet or something, you yeah. know, a rubber bullet or something. Do they have or do they not have like a handheld fire extinguisher that has like mace foam in it? So to uh, me, that would make the they, most sense. They have foggers. You know, they have bigger capacity ones for, like, different things, right? So you have different types. You have, like, just the fluid one. You have the fog. And then you also have, like, uh, like the soap kind of one or the, the foam. So yeah. there's different things. Yeah, we could blast them. But so OC is, is an auction displacer. So you can actually... Uh, yeah, sorry, CS gas the auction displacer. So you could actually kill someone if you just spray them and close it, right? They'll, they'll suffocate, right? Yeah. OC, not so much. But there's still rules on how long you can allow someone to kind of be contaminated. You. So you have to follow all those rules. Yeah. Uh, I know a lot of prisons uh, use cell extraction canines. Did you guys not use We them? didn't have it at the time. All we yeah. had was we had cell phone sniff dogs. I got you. And that was new to us at the time. So yeah. Dogs who smelled cell phones was like super new. Yeah. Yeah, the cell extraction canine teams are, uh, I mean, those dogs are like, if ever there was a single application dog, like that's it, just a nasty yeah. ass eater that loves fucking hurting everybody, like just long line, send him in and yeah. he grabs a hold of him and you, and you pull the whole fucking unit out and the dude comes with him, you yeah. know, but well, uh, that's a dangerous fucking gig for the dog. But Yeah, because if they wanted to, they would just, they would try and everything. To, dude, I'll tell you, the dude I went in on, 
He had his belly wrapped with a with a blanket, like a like a ninja turtle. His knees were protected by flip flops that were cut. No oh, shit. Right? His elbows. So he looked like a ninja ready to fight, and he patterned all the very sensitive areas that can yeah. get hurt. Wow. Yeah, and that's not uncommon. When you yeah. see dudes wanting to, like, all right, we're going to throw down today, they prepare themselves. They pattern their bodies up. Yeah. They get ready for it. To me, that, that further would reinforce the application of, like, a combat jujitsu type of training. Yeah, and, and even that is almost the worst-case scenario. In that, like, if someone's like that, hit them with non, yeah. non-lethal. Until they submit. Like, yeah. it's like, I don't want to put hands on a dude if I don't have to. Because, yeah. like, one, I don't want to touch these dudes. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, what if they have, it's just a lot. Yeah. It's or crazy. But, yeah, but be ready for it because it happens, yeah. right? Yeah. It That's the thing. You have to be ready for when it happens. Yeah. Yeah. Some wild shit. Is there any other uh, crazy fucking stories from being a prison guard? <sighs> There's a ton. It's just a, it's, it's just a crazy environment that I was excited to get out of. Is there a craziest or, or most surprising thing that you found in somebody's cell oh no that's i mean you're gonna find cell Everything. phones you're gonna find it all it, yeah. that's not like the most i think the craziest thing i saw in the prison system was that how easy it was to flip ceos to do bad things right to offer them money or to offer them sexual favors really and, yeah corrections officers will will take not all of them i'm not saying this is like a blank but like it's not uncommon to hear one of your counterparts was fired because they got inappropriate with another inmate, whether it be bringing things in, completely illegal, or sexual favors. Dude on dude? And dude on girl and, and all, all, all the above. Yeah. I had a female in, in our unit who the, we, were, we would pass. Like, I was in the third shift and she was in the second shift. She was a mean woman. I was like, man, that woman, is, she causes problems. We called her a Kickstarter. She caused problems because she was so, like, hot and heavy to all the all the inmates. I was like, I could talk to any of them. I'm doing my job. You do yours. Stay out of my fucking way kind of thing, right? She would cause problems. Later we find out, well, she gave one dude, you know, oral. And then he made her do it to all of the dudes on the bottom tier before he ended up telling on her. I mean, what, what's her motivation? It's because I don't know. I don't know. I'm just going to say they fall in love for some real reason. It's like, it's like a, a female in that environment is getting hooting hollered all day long. Yeah. I guess she was vulnerable, needed attention, whatever the case is. And she, she decided to do that and, and ended up, they, they, they made her, uh, you know, yeah, yeah, they made an example of nuts. Oh, it's I've I mean, seen me, old men do the same thing. Old men who will get a blowjob from from an inmate. I don't get it. I've seen old men bringing panties to to females. Like you see an inmate all of a sudden wearing like a pink thong. You're like, what the fuck? Where'd she get that from? Well, a, a corrections officer brought it into her. Dude, most of the cell phones that are brought in are from corrections officers. Most of the drugs that are brought in from corrections officers. Like yeah. that whole world is crazy. It seems like it. I mean, it, you know, there's. Again, there's the pop culture stuff that I'm sure gets over-exaggerated, but there's a lot of, like, documentaries on prisons and stuff that yeah. I've seen that, yeah, just the shit that goes on there is crazy, which to me, like, on a broader scale, I'm curious your opinion as having been a correctional officer. Um, to me, there there needs to be a a reform of some sort with our prison system. Yeah, you know, the, the private prison in itself is kind of questionable, right? You're telling me you're going to make money, a business out of putting people in prison? Yeah. Isn't that a little bit kind of a contradiction, right? Or, or conflict a of conflict of interest? Yeah. You're telling me, so So now it's like, well, fuck it, let's get more people in prison. Yeah. That doesn't feel good, yeah. right? Especially like, you know, seeing seeing how minorities are always getting in prison, like all these things, right? Like there's a lot of things that can go with that that I don't like the private prison sector because of that. It yeah. doesn't feel good. Do you know what the... Uh, percentages private to non-private i don't i don't but i know like what happens how the private prisons 
got their contracts is because they they showed the state that they can do afford it cheaper. Yeah. So if normally, if if, a, if an inmate one day housing is about one hundred thirty five dollars, just use that number. And then you go to CCN and be like, hey, we can do it for cheaper. And so they're like, oh, yeah, I guess we'll do it for, say, uh, $75. They go, like, oh, so the state goes, oh, you're going to save us how millions in the end of the year? Yeah, we'll take that contract. And that's how that's how they do it. They underbid them. How does that work legally, though, With uh, as a corrections officer? I mean, so if you're in a, a private institution are you not a federal employee no. or state employee like it's, no it's a private prison i never had state benefits federal benefits nothing i mean to me that there's inherently has to be a lot of gray area in a bad way then with in terms of how things are enforced and assault well yeah well think about like, it now like who's the who's the money who's the liability the yeah. inmate is the money i'm the liability right yeah, so that's that's the concern. It's like you try and do too much enforcing, and they start putting complaints on you. Yeah. Well, you can get just get fired just alone of being the the nuisance that's yeah. driving the, the the money crazy. Jesus, man. it's a weird it's space, like, man. I walked away from it. I'm happy I did. Yeah, I mean it is. I mean, you know, and to me, there's again, like you, you can look at how many people in prison and say, okay, something's not right. I mean, there's a million different angles yeah. of depending on who you ask is to you know is it. Are, are laws too harsh is, you know, it's a lot of things, man. You, so being that, you know, I, I still work with one of the organizations down in, in LA called homeboys industry and they kind of help, um, gang bangers, gang members, um, kind of walk away from the, from that and, and kind of reassimilate into the population. Right. And you know, this, the recidivism rate is, is insane. I, th- <laughs> I'm throwing throwing this at the top of my head, but I'm pretty sure it's something like 70% recidivism rate, yeah. which, which is like why, right? And so having a, one of my dear friends who just recently got out of prison, close to 20 years, it's like, well, you know, one, they have to learn how to just assimilate into population, and that's not easy, right? Because the culture of what they know is completely different already. Two, there's very little programs right out there that really kind of kind of guide them and hold their hand a little bit more than they need to, as well as opportunity, right? The stigma between someone who's been in prison for 20 years. My buddy was in prison for 20 years. Whatever in prison happened is happened, but what his charges were, you know, were more drug charges, right? But the world will look at him as like a lesser, like, look, he's, he is an addict. That's what happened. He struggled with addiction, but, you know, he did 20 years and now for everyone, he's he could be just as bad as a being a murderer. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, and so him getting opportunity has been so challenging. I've tried to find him jobs myself because he's my friend, and people are like, "Oh, yeah, man, no, I just can't." Right? And you're yeah. like, "Wait, man, I know you're hiring," <laughs> you know? Yeah. but like because his background made the intimidated them, rightfully so. I get yeah. that, yeah. but it's it's a challenging to get out and actually find a way to kind of get back into to the norm normalcy of what we have in our society. Yeah. Do you think that uh, prison conditions uh, are the way they should be, or, or if you had a magic wand and could say that this is how the prison experience is going to be for inmates, would you change it? And if so, how? Yeah, I think more programs. I think uh, I, I like the the programs that allow you to go to school. Private prisons don't really have that, right? Or they hadn't when I was there, right? State prisons have those programs where they get into GED. They they give them like skill sets, you know. Um, they need more opportunities like that. They need more opportunities of, of, of just learning a skill set to get out and be able to do the, the jobs that most of us probably won't even apply for, you know? Do you think that most of them would take advantage of that? Absolutely. I yeah. know they will. I know a lot of people who've been in prison decide, like, right there, they're like, shit, I, if I could do it different, I would. Yeah. You know? So I, uh, that begs the question, then, um, why, why do you suppose recidivism is so high? I think it's the same as any of us is why do so many veterans struggle with transitioning? It is hard to 
walk away from something that has been your life. You tell you what to dress, how to, what to, how to, how to dress, what to wear, when to wake up, all these things for so long, it is hard to find out who you really are outside of that. Yeah. Same thing. So the parallel between a veteran and someone who, who's been in prison for a long time is not different. It, like the transition is just the same struggle, but also a professional athlete. I've, I've had the pleasure of talking to all three of those kind of sub, sub demographics and yeah. subgroups, right? And they're all the same. That transition out of that world is the hardest thing for them because they don't even know who they are. It's like a, re, a lack of being able to reinvent and find purpose. Yeah. The, so here, here's one perspective that I would say I think bears looking at too is that or even maybe separating into two different categories prisoners you know there's the here's an opportunity if you take advantage of it great and and you know if you stay within the straight and narrow and, and you take advantage of these opportunities and then you do them fantastic but there's also i don't know what the percentage would be but obviously there is a portion of the prison inmate population that doesn't give a fuck that's not yeah. going to take advantage that are just evil fucking people yeah from my perspective, I think it's kind of two two issues is that number one is that if if you're sending somebody to prison, the circumstances need to be such that that it warrants sending them, yeah, which I, I do think there needs to be a total overhaul in terms of what is illegal. And I think an, an easy metric for that is is that if something is illegal, it has to be egregious enough that that we as a as society decide that it's worth somebody potentially losing their life over enforcing it. Because the reality of it is, is that if a cop tries to arrest somebody for pick whatever the fuck it is that's illegal and they decide, fuck you, I'm not breaking the law or this shouldn't be illegal and they resist, it can ultimately end up in that person dying over right. it. So to me, that's step one is that if you if you only make things illegal that, that fall into that category that, hey, this is such a problem societal wise that it's, it's worth our officers potentially losing their life over and it's worth our society members potentially losing their life over because it's that big of a fucking problem. So yeah. to me, that's step one that eliminates a lot of the people that shouldn't be in prison anyway. Right. But then step two is that, okay, if you've checked those boxes and now you're there and you fucking deserve to be there is that make that experience so God awful that people are like, dude, I am not fucking going back yeah. there. I, I really do. I mean, I've not been to prison. Uh, you know, I'm not a fan of necessarily, you know, being inhumane, but I also think like, Again, if, if that entry or funnel into prison is changed where it's like, if you're there, you fucking deserve to be there and then make it to where it's like, dude, I don't care what I have to do. I am not fucking going back yeah. there, you know, because that, that's an easy thing to do. We've right. both spent enough time in miserable places to know that like a little bit of imagination, you can make an environment so fucking terrible to where people are going to do anything to avoid going back to yep. it, you know, but um this isn't about me. It's about you. I was just, just curious. <laughs> no, I, like I, I, it's, you know. it's, uh, the prison system is a whole different ball of wax, man. And, you know, just things like, uh, marijuana and how it's become legal in some States, but some people are still in prison yeah. for, you know, like those, yeah, the, all those crazy things. Yeah. yeah. I agreed. It's like, I think drugs are a whole, whole different animal that, that shouldn't be a part of it. But to me, I guess, you know, where my frustration comes is that when you see like uprisings and, and, just the tit for tat and the cat and mouse and like all of the bullshit that gets put up with yeah. in, in prison. I mean, no different than the shit that you went through. It's like, why are, why are we as a society letting prisoners dictate so many fucking things and do so many things? Yeah. You know, it's like, well, it gets even deeper when you start talking about the cost of all that and you start talking immigration. Yeah. Then it's like even crazier. 
And that call broke my heart so bad that they had a half invested medic because I'm trying to be a good dad. And there was only one answer for me at the time was to resign. I resigned two weeks later. <laughs>